ghoulish day to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by, making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes, as always, well, those are courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey. And of course, I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Floor window to Cesar Hotel, 640 South Main Street, early Sunday morning. Her body landing on the second floor roof in the light well of the building. A woman plunged to her death from a seventh floor window of a downtown hotel yesterday afternoon. Her body landing atop the hotel marquee above the heads of pedestrians on busy Main Street. Authorities suspect the 28-year-old man who died Friday on Main Street in downtown Los Angeles may have plunged to his death from a Skid Row hotel. A Los Angeles County coroner's spokesman said Saturday the man was pronounced dead Friday at 5.05 p.m. outside the Cecil Hotel. Missing from his home, 912 Strand Avenue, Manhattan Beach, since last Saturday. According to police, W.K. Norton, 46 years of age, was found dead in a hotel room at 640 South Main Street yesterday morning. A number of capsules believed to have contained poison were given by police as evidence that Norton had ended his own life. The capsules were found in his vest pocket. Norton had been dead apparently only a few hours when found by a maid. He registered at the hotel, according to police, last Saturday as James Willie of Chicago. A young woman plummeted to her death from the ninth floor of a Main Street hotel Friday night, killing an elderly man strolling on the sidewalk below. Police yesterday identified the body of a man who fell from the seventh floor at 640 South Main Street as that of Robert Smith. This is CBS News, Los Angeles. An autopsy of Canadian tourist Eliza Lamb's body failed to determine whether she was killed or died accidentally in a giant water cistern on the top of downtown Los Angeles hotel roof. A young woman plummeted to her death from a ninth floor of a Main Street hotel Friday night, killing an elderly man strolling on the sidewalk below. Mrs. Pauline Otten, 27, had been discussing marital problems with her estranged husband, Dewey, 32, in the Hotel Cecil. Officers said she leapt or fell from the room when her husband went out to dinner. At first, police thought Mrs. Otten and George Giannini, 65, might have leapt out the window together, but they found the man had his hands in his pockets and his shoes still on. If he had fallen nine stories, the impact would have knocked his shoes off. Los Angeles Times. Raul Enriquez, a hotel night clerk at Cecil, said a man he is certain was Ramirez lived in a 14th floor room for several weeks in late July and August. Enriquez, 36, who lived in a room on the same floor, said he had a few brief conversations with Ramirez and said Ramirez told him he was from Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. He said the men did not know each other by name. He said Ramirez liked to play rock and roll music on his hotel room radio and judging from odors Enrique could smell was smoking marijuana. His throat slashed. Louis D. Borden, 53 years of age, former sergeant in the Army Medical Corps, was found dead in a hotel room at 640 South Main Street. Investigating officers, finding a razor by the body and farewell notes, reported that Borden ended his life because of ill health. Officials of the Hotel Cecil said she had registered as Margaret Brown of Denver when she checked into room 704 a week ago. Hundreds of spectators gathered as firemen and ambulance attendants put up a ladder to the marquee and lowered the body. Shortly afterward, police were called to the lobby of the Philharmonic Auditorium to aid a man who had seemed to be hysterical and they said he told them he had been unnerved by witnessing the woman's death. Grace E. Magro, 25 years of age, died early yesterday in Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. Police were unable to determine whether the woman had fallen or jumped from the hotel room. Telephone wires ripped from poles in her descent were entangled about her body. The officer stated that M.W. Madison, 26-year-old sailor of the USS Virginia, who was the woman's companion, was sleeping at the time of the occurrence and could give no explanation for the woman's action. 
W.K. Norton, 46 years of age, was found dead in a hotel room at 640 South Main Street yesterday morning. A number of capsules believed to have contained poison were given by police as evidence that Norton had ended his own life. The capsules, police said, were found in his vest pocket. Norton had been dead apparently only a few hours when found by a maid. He registered at the hotel, according to police, last Saturday as James Willies of Chicago. The Cecil Hotel, <laughs> considered by many to be one of the most dangerous hotels in downtown Los Angeles. Many deaths have taken place here, from countless suicides to murders to freak accidents and so much more. It was a safe haven for serial killers and the low lives that are the scum on the bottom of Los Angeles's shoes. It wasn't supposed to be like that, though. Really, it was built with dreams that upper-class folks traveling through would stop by and stay. Cecil was built in 1924. The cost to make this large structure that's so notorious to this day was a mere $1.5 million. Today, that's close to $24 million. On the outside, it looks like an inviting place. It's, in fact, beautiful. Some may even say it has glass stained windows, a marble lobby, and so much more. But people who have stayed here were in for a very sad surprise, especially in most recent years. Word is, as soon as your feet leave the hotel's elevators, you're going back into time, like into the 60s and 70s. The Cecil's success was short lived. Within five years of opening their doors to the public, the Great Depression hit the United States, leaving many people unemployed, homeless, desperate, and, well, depressed. By the 1930s, Skid Row was in full bore, the most dangerous area around, and that's no easy feat. Home to thousands of homeless people, Skid Row's home to prostitution, drug dealers, parolees, ex-convicts, rapists, murderers. Somebody you definitely don't want to bring home to mom or dad. Skid Row is one of the largest homeless populations since the 30s in the United States. I have family that were born and raised not too far from that area. And I ask my family and friends who are still in California, hey, if you're ever in that area, can you please, you know, stop and take a quick picture? It was like, oh, hell no. I don't go through there. One of my friends, Rick McCollum, he's actually one of the voiceovers that you're going to be hearing. He said that he was just passing through a few weeks ago. And wow, he said that there was a huge fat hooker standing there in like this like body fishnet stocking and that's all she was wearing and then he saw her walk into a little tent and so it's still very much a happening place for sure and it's unfortunate too i mean this place it had so much potential you go into so many places in los angeles i i lived in california for several years both in northern and southern and actually california is my number one state of listeners i have so many cities listening, and I, I truly appreciate it. But uh, there's so many neat places in California, but then you have places like Skid Row, and it's it, it, it's unfortunate because, you know, Cecil, along with several other hotels and businesses, never stood a chance when the Great Depression hit, and they're still stuck in limbo. Skid Row costs Los Angeles well over $5 million every single year. Well, in 2014, the hotel is sold for 30 million big ones, a little over 34 million today. They shut down for renovation, but, you know, while they were working on it, coronavirus hit nationwide, and it was a devastating blow for not only the people, but as we all know, businesses as well. Work was brought to an abrupt stop and suspended indefinitely. Well, Word is that they are throwing elbow grease back into it, and rumor has it that it should be back up and running a little past October 2021. So that's just a few short months away. Is this accurate? I don't know. I have no idea. I guess only time will tell. 
If it does, I will update you folks in a future episode. And (laughs) if they do open and operate to the public again, will people dare step foot back into the Cecil? I mean, with reviews like... Cockroaches! Beware of the cockroaches! I felt like I was in a room that could have potentially been infested by invisible bugs. There was a tranny in the lobby and a cigarette burned in the sheets. I've stayed at better hotels in Malaysia. Do not stay here. It is extremely overpriced, the staff is rude, and the rooms are dangerous. While I stayed here for a weekend, our sink actually fell off the wall and broke into pieces just because I barely rested my hand on it. It obviously wasn't installed properly and is a safety hazard. We also found hair in the shower that wasn't ours and dirt in the beds. There is also a two-person minimum for the rooms, and it is strictly enforced and checked at the elevator at all times of night. Worst dirty hotel ever. Even a cheap hooker wouldn't go to this dump. Holy crap, what a shit show. This place is disgusting. I called my travel agent and out in 20 minutes. So I checked into my room, only to realize there was no toilet or shower in my room. But the public toilet and shower down the hall, oh my word, absolutely gag-worthy and disgusting. So I traded up for $20 more to a room with both. But when I got in there, the sheets were soiled. There was some type of unidentified bodily fluid all over the sheets. My word. Once I stepped off the elevator, I knew I was in trouble. I was alone with my two-year-old. We stepped into a hallway that made me think we were stepping back in time. Paint peeling, tiles all jacked up, shared bathroom that was nasty, and the room. I walked into a bed and a sink. The bedding had holes and stains. There was no A.C. in the midst of July. I cracked the window to get some kind of air and heard the lovely sounds of a woman screaming down on the street. Everybody needs to have a Cecil Hotel experience once in their life. When they're so broke that they'll stay at a place so bad that a woman died in the water tank and nobody noticed for weeks? Cecil is where the city sends the homeless people when they are trying to get them off the street for a few days. So, even if the hotel is clean, the problem is that you don't know who's going to be in the next room or down the hallway. This is often the problem in a cheap hotel. Not the hotel, but the other customers. Don't touch anything in there, or you may get AIDS. The room was, at the juncture, exactly what we expected. Dirty, tiny, thin walls, about a foot around the bed. Our room did have a bathroom, which was a nice surprise, but honestly, it did make a bit of difference because we were living in a goddamn nightmare. This is one time to not up the fuck. Don't stay at Hotel Cecil. Just don't. Find a nice youth hostel or in the right weather at Alley. You'll be better off and would have saved your dignity and $35. Run from this place. Piles of human feces by your bed. (gasps) Again, only time will tell. Former residents claim the carpet was sticky and dirty, dusty and grimy, and apparently the place had bed bugs. I was severely bitten by bed bugs all over my body, even my eyes. Fuck this hotel. I beg you to stay away. One of the hotel's former general managers says that out of the 10 years she was there, that thousands of 911 calls were made from Cecil. And during her time there, again, 10 years, around 80 or so people died at this hotel. Like, wow, that's a lot of people. That's a shitload of people, actually. Cecil Hotel, the place where dreams, they go to die, plagued by death cursed with suicides the place where people check in and don't always check out cecil where serial killers roam the halls covered in blood shit is about to get real let's rewind a little though with a bloody notorious reputation that's tattooed on cecil's backside like one tramp stamp that you regret forever in 2001, decided damage control? Well, that must be done. With the new idea comes a brand new facelift, one that the Cecil desperately needs. Enter Stay on Main. Most of the hotel will still remain as Cecil, 
But within the building, they create a new hotel, a fancy hotel, and dare they hope, or better even, pray, a safe hotel. The Cecil and Stay on Main have separate lobbies. The rooms on floors four, five, and six, those are completely redone. A fresh, vibrant, beautiful orange is painted all over, screaming, happy! New bedding, the whole shebang, right? The rest of the floors, however, well, those remain as Cecil, as they have people who aren't just here for the night. They have many that are longtime residents. Like, this is home. Not just coming, you know, and staying for a few days and leaving. I mean, they've been here for several years. With Stay on Main, ratings, they suddenly go up. Yes! Well, hold on. Don't get too excited. Ratings may have gone up for a little while. I mean, I get it. People, they're checking in, and guess what? They're checking out, baby. Well, not all. It's actually Stay on Main that Elisa Lamb checked into. And sadly, as we all know, she never checked out. You'll hear more about her and her sad story in just a short while. Now, as we know, she was not the only one to die here at the Cecil. The first known deaths occur in 1926, shorter than two years after they opened their doors to the public. Now, I get it. You know, people, they check into hotels and whether it's from a suicide or, hey, maybe they're, they have an accident or maybe they're older or are sick. And, they, you know, stuff happens. We all die. We're all going to die. No one's escaping this. But it just seems like death is gravitated towards Cecil. So two deaths in 1926. William McKay, he's a miner, who was staying there and he dies. And a man, H.W. Simmons. Cecil was his home for several years. Well, he dies from heart disease. The following year, the Cecil sees its very first known suicide. Percy Kirk shoots himself in his head when he fails to reconcile with his estranged wife and child. January 23, 1927, L.A. Times reports on this death. Leaving a note addressed to the press in which he said he spent $40,000 in the last six months in a vain attempt to buy happiness, Percy Ormond Cook, 52 years of age, shot himself last night in a room at the Hotel Cecil, 6th and Main Streets. He was taken to the receiving hospital where doctors said he has only a slight chance of recovery. He dies later that night. Well, Percy, he's the first known suicide, but he certainly will not be the last. Many will follow throughout the years in those same haunting footsteps. In 1931, another suicide, W.K. Norton, is found dead in his room after he takes poison capsules. At the time of check-in, he uses the alias James Willis. A note is found in his room. Money cannot buy happiness. I have tried it, and I find that it cannot be done. I have lost my wife, my son, and my home. And I am doing the only thing left for me to do. The following year, in 1932, a maid walks into a room and finds Benjamin Doddick with a gunshot wound to his head. It's believed to be yet another suicide. And in 1933, an unidentified man is found unresponsive on the Cecil property. A young truck driver, finding himself in a very dangerous and unfortunate situation, caught between his truck and the Cecil Hotel wall, fatally crushed in a horrific freak accident. And sadly, to this day, he remains unidentified. Death around each corner. The following year, in 1934, Cecil resident former Army Medical Corps Sergeant Louis Borden is found dead in his room. His throat, well, that's slit. The death that was gruesome, not your typical taking poison, shooting yourself in the head, or leaping off of a Cecil that the hotel so often saw. At first, they thought they had a homicide on their hands. Well, it turns out, Sergeant Borden was a very ill man. His health was rapidly declining. He left several notes 
behind saying that as well, a motive for his suicide. He simply didn't want to put off the inevitable any longer. And a few short years later, a woman named Grace Bagro jumps from her ninth story window. What's supposed to be a simple jump to her death? Suicide? Turns an unfortunate freak accident. She leaps out the window and some way, somehow, Grace's body catches on the telephone wires and it wraps around her body. And I hate to say it, but death was not instantaneous at that point. She died later that evening, I believe. Her boyfriend, a sailor, he was sleeping at the time of her death. He had no clue why she did what she did. She showed no real signs of depression. But that's a lot of the times the case. People just go, I had no idea Joe Blow was depressed. Why did he do it? We just, we don't know what's going on through a person's head. But it's unfortunate that the person closest to her, the man who literally shares her bed, had no clue. So very, very sad. Now, in 1938, Roy Thompson, a United States Marine Corps fireman, well, he jumps from the top floor. He's found on a skylight on a nearby building. And before his death, he had been here at the Cecil for several weeks. In late 1939, a Navy officer named Erwin Newbit is found dead in his room. He had congested poison. Several weeks later, a teacher named Dorothy Sager congests poison as well. Well, it's believed that Erwin and Sager were lovers. They had been staying in the Cecil together. For days, she kind of just wandered aimlessly around the hotel. And finally, someone noticed, hey, something's not really right with this woman. What's going on? Well, it turns out she herself had taken poison to end her misery, just like her lover, wanting to be reunited, not wanting to live another moment without him. Irwin, he was a sailor on the USS Wright, and he had left a letter addressed to Dr. D.C. Newbit. My guess is probably his father, I'd imagine. Well, instead of sending it to D.C., it gets buried with him. Who knows what was in that letter? We could only imagine. The only way we'll know is if they exhume his body and open the letter. Well, in 1944, the hotel sees its first known murder. 19-year-old Dorothy Purcell wakes up one morning feeling sick. She goes into the bathroom where she goes into labor. <laughs> she had no freaking clue that she was pregnant. She tries to be as quiet as possible as her lover, who's twice her age, is sleeping in the other room. She throws the newborn baby, who didn't have a chance in life, right out the window. Meanwhile, her boyfriend is sleeping, unaware of the horrific events that just took place. He had no clue she was pregnant either, obviously. Dorothy was arrested and charged with murder. She claimed that she thought the baby was stillborn. She was unfortunately found not guilty due to insanity. And I just have to say, you know, it, it, it turns into a crime when you throw the baby out the window whether it's dead or alive. You know, just like people who scream, oh, I didn't mean to kill him, it was an accident. Call the cops, call police. You know, don't, don't go bury the body and hope it's never found. That, that is a crime then at that point. <laughs> and same with this, you know, she didn't know she was pregnant. Even if it was alive, she could have took it to a fire department or, or a hospital or something. So I don't know, that kind of stuff just really gets to me. It's like, how about you just... Somebody call security! In 1947, a man named Robert Smith jumps from the seventh floor. In 1954, Helen Gurney checks into the hotel with the alias name Margaret Brown. One week of her being there at the Cecil, she jumps out of the seventh floor, landing on Cecil's marquee. And a few years later, in 1962, a woman named Pauline Otten meets with her estranged husband at her ninth story room. They're talking, but it turns into an argument. Hence the estranged part. You know, sick of yelling and fighting, her husband leaves to go get some food and some fresh air and some silence. He's, he's sick of the yelling and fighting. He really is. And so is she. She's had so much enough where instead of going out to get some fresh air the safe way, she wants to end the drama 
completely and she jumps out the window. Well, this suicide kind of pisses me off and I'll tell you why. It turns into a double tragedy when down below an innocent bystander, an elderly gentleman named George Gianni is minding his own damn business. But sadly, he could not be more in the wrong place at the wrong time as Pauline is falling to her intentional death. Mind you, this poor man breaks her nine story fall. Death is instant. At first, authorities thought this was a double suicide. Are these lovers trying to make a point and, you know, till death do us part and now we're together in death? Like, who knows? But it's just so unfortunate that somebody else had to die, you know? Further investigation, they realize, okay, this is not the case. First of all, I believe witnesses were there. They saw the man. But also, Gianni, he had his hands in his pockets and he has his shoes on his feet. They thought that if you're falling from that far up, your shoes would probably come off. Your hands certainly would not be in your pockets. I mean, it's really just a heartbreaking case. If you intend to take your life, you know what's coming. You want it to happen. You you praise the moment that it happens. But taking someone with you, it's unfathomable. And I know she didn't mean for that to happen, obviously, but... Man, that story, it just is cringeworthy. Really, really, really. When I heard about it, it just broke my heart. I was like, oh my God. So that same year, Cecil sees yet another suicide when Julia Moore leaps out of her eighth story window, landing on a second story interior light well. Two years later, in 1964, the hotel suffers from losing a beloved longtime resident in the worst way possible. Murder. Pigeon Goldie Osgood, she was 65 years old when she met her gruesome, untimely death. She was a retired telephone operator. She moved into the Cecil in 1958. She she absolutely loved it there. It was truly her home. Yeah, it might not have been the safest place, but she was comfortable there. She enjoyed her retirement being there. One of her true loves was watching and feeding the birds. She had a routine schedule. Like clockwork, every single day, she would walk the short distance from Cecil to Pershing Square. Always seen wearing her Dodgers hat. That was like an extra limb. Dodgers fan forever. With Dodger's hat on her head and bird seed in her hand, she was a fixture in the area. She was bright and happy and kind-hearted. If she saw little birds getting picked on by bigger birds, she would step in. She always made sure everyone was able to get food. No bird went hungry when Pigeon Goldie was around. After several hours of feeding the birds, she would go back home to the Cecil and hang out, checking in and hanging out and chatting with her fellow residents before calling it a day and going back to her room. Life as Cecil was good for Pigeon. She had no plans on leaving. Everything was going good and great and grand until one fateful, dreadful day, June 4th, 1964, starts off as any other day. Pigeon, she's about to walk out the door. She smiles as she grabs her beloved Dodger's hat. She places it on her head, grabs the bag of birdseed for her sweet feathered friends, and she heads out to the park. It's a beautiful, gorgeous day in Los Angeles. She's enjoying that fresh air, looking forward to doing what she loves the most, feeding those sweet feathered birds. The young, the old, the weak, and the strong. She stays for hours, several hours. She then walks home, stops to talk to some friends, 
Oh, they laugh. They talk about their day and what have you. And Pigeon, she walks away, heading to her room. The clock is ticking. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. As for Pigeon, her time is almost up. She walks through the door that she has gone in and out of every day for the past several years. She walks in for the last time. No one will ever see her alive again. One hour after Pigeon is last seen, her body is discovered by a man that was issuing the latest version of the phone book to each room. Pigeon, she's lying on the ground. She has a towel tightly wrapped around her neck, and she has been badly beaten and brutally raped. Birdseed, it's scattered all over the floor. Her beloved Dodger's hat lies beside her body. Is it possible she came face to face with a deadly serial killer? An L.A. newspaper reports this. A woman was stabbed to death May 16th in a hotel block away from Miss Osgood, also known as Pigeon. Another woman, known for her care of birds in MacArthur Park, was stabbed to death April 29th. It's possible. Here we see two deaths less than a month apart from each other. Both women, they loved birds, frequented parks not too far from one another. They both fed birds. I mean, there is a lot in common, both elderly. One week after Pigeon's brutal murder, a man named Jake Ellinger was found to be roaming in the street right near the hotel, and he was covered in blood. Ellinger is arrested, but soon released. This was before all the advanced DNA and technology that we are fortunate enough to have today. Both murders remain unsolved to this very day. Another murder semi-connected to the Cecil is that of Terry Francis. In 1988, she's found murdered in her home, which isn't Cecil, but just give me a second. She's stabbed to death. Two months later, her estranged boyfriend is arrested for her murder. They had been living together at the time of her death, but once he killed her, he fled to a killer's safety haven, Cecil Hotel. It is here that he would be apprehended. Just another day at Cecil, baby. Nothing else going on here. In 1963, an Oakland man named Delbert Lawrence jumps out of a 13th floor window, landing in a parking lot behind the Cecil. And in 1975, an unidentified woman using the name Allison Lowell jumps from her 12th floor room. She had been here about four days. Allison lands on the second floor roof. And in 1992, an unidentified man's body is found in an alley behind the Cecil. He fell from the 15th floor, and to this day, they're unsure if he was pushed or fell. So it's kind of, it's super unfortunate. I mean, we don't know if it's suicide or murder, and we don't know his name forever unidentified, forever unknown. In 2013, Canadian student Elisa Lamb checks in at Stay at Maine, but her experience couldn't have been more Cecil Hotel. In fact, it screamed it. Her story went nationwide. Before the young lady left to the United States, she had promised her beloved mother and father that she would call and check in every single day. That was really the only way that they would be comfortable with her taking such a huge trip alone. She had never been to the United States before. This was a huge deal. She stays true to her word, too. Every day, she calls. That is until January 31st. That day would be the last time they talked to their sweet Elisa. They immediately knew something Something was wrong. That was really unlike her. If she says she's going to call every day, she called every day. She was always true to her word. Elisa was a very social person. She was huge in social media world, especially Tumblr. She was a writer at heart and really wrote about personal stuff online for all to see. Seems like I make the worst possible mistakes at the worst possible moments. 
My mouth is my downfall and it will get me into trouble. Elisa at first stayed in a shared room with two other girls, but it really didn't take long for the girls to start to complain to management about she has a really strange behavior, like totally. She's eventually moved to her own room. It's believed that this is better for everyone involved, Elisa herself, the other two women, and just the hotel people who have to keep hearing about the complaints. As most of us you know, as most of us know, at least the ones familiar with this story, Elisa suffered from mental illness. She was on medications to better the situation, but she was very well aware of the issue and that it made her a different person. It seemed like even though it helped her at times, the side effects were wonky and left her feeling really sleep deprived. Bipolar. A few good days followed by weeks of not sleeping. Just two days before her disappearance, Elisa Lamb writes the sad note on Tumblr. My laptop screen is brighter than my future. She wrote that January 29th, 2013. Last form of communication is just a couple days later on January 31st. When the day came for Elisa to check out, of Hotel Cecil, there is nobody there. She, There's no sign of her anywhere. Her room, it was checked. All of her belongings were all still there, including clothing, her purse, and wallet, and probably the most important thing of all, her medications, something that she was supposed to be taking every single day. When she didn't come back to claim her things, they were kind of boxed up and put into storage along with other people's forgotten treasures. Her family makes the trip from Vancouver to the States to try to figure out what exactly happened to their sweetheart of Elisa. Where is she? Why hasn't she called? Why didn't she check out? What's going on with her? A woman hunt is conducted, knowing that she's not on her meds and that she might not be in the right state of mind and not being used to the area that is Los Angeles, especially... Skid Row, Los Angeles, everyone was on board in search for the missing Vancouver woman. Many of the rooms are searched, and we're talking several hundred. Not only that, but there are 600 closets, each one checked. Offices, she wasn't in those either. The basement, nope, no sign. They used scent tracking dogs, helicopters, everything you could think of LAPD could possibly be doing. The dogs, they did catch her scent tracking her at a fifth floor window where there happens to be a fire escape. They search the roof. No sign of the missing woman. Where the hell is Elisa Lamb? During hundreds of hours of watching hotel security footage, they finally hit paved dirt. A woman matching Elisa Lamb's description, she walks onto the elevator. After a couple weeks go by and still she's nowhere to be seen, they release the footage to the public in hopes in some way or form they can get answers, hints, clues, sightings, tips, anything to really just help their case when it comes to Elisa. The footage, it's chilling. This is the last time that she is seen alive, recording the final moments leading to what was to come. Unfortunately, the Cecil did not have cameras on every single floor, and this includes the floor that Elisa was staying on. The elevator door, it opens. A young woman with long black hair wearing a reddish sweater, she walks in. Nothing seems weird yet. She stands in front of the button, slightly bends down, and she starts to push several of the buttons this is where it gets kind of like okay what what's happening here why are you know usually if you get on you have one button to press two if you want to close the door right away but yeah okay floor four okay okay now i'm just gonna wait doors closed it's no big deal well she pushes as many buttons as possible why she does this i don't know none of us do i don't think After she does this, she walks into the corner of the elevator and waits. The door does not close. Confused, she walks to the open elevator. She hangs out of it, looks both ways. She walks back in. She appears to like shrink down as if trying to make herself smaller. 
as if she's hiding. And it kind of reminded me of like when I opened the door and my cat is like worried that somebody's going to come in that shouldn't be. She like kind of like shrinks down. It, it just kind of really reminded me of something like that. So mind you, the door is still open at this point. She goes back out, continues to scan her surroundings. She then starts to move erratically. Her her hands are moving as if she's talking to someone. And at one point, she's fully out of this elevator whose door still never moves an inch. You can only see what looks to be her hand. She then appears and what looks like she's pushing all the elevator buttons once again. The door remains open. And as I watch this footage, I ask myself, why the bloody hell are these doors not closing? Frustrated, she comes back out and she's twisting and turning, moving bizarrely, acting odd. When the door remains open, she leaves for a final time. This is the last time we will ever see Elisa alive. And amazingly enough, when she leaves a few seconds later, the doors close. The door that opens again, then closes. Seems to be working just fine now. So there was speculation. Was it a person on the outside that kept pushing the button so it kept staying open? You know, preventing it from closing? Was it somehow paranormal or supernatural forces keeping it from closing? Was the elevator having technical issues and just malfunctioning? Someone points out on the Netflix Vanishing miniseries that one of the buttons Lamb was pushing was the door open button. Now with many models, including apparently this one, once you push that button, the door will stay open for two whole minutes. So that's a huge possibility. That could have been the case. Maybe those were one of the buttons that she was pushing. But you know, what was up with Elisa going out several times, moving her hands and gestures that would make anyone believe she's talking to someone? You know, like not everybody does it, but the Italian in me, I noticed that if I'm getting super stoked and super excited about a conversation, I use my hands. I'm animatedly using my hands a lot more than I usually would be. And it really, just watching that video, it really looks like she was there talking to somebody. You know, was it a fellow hotel stayer or was it somebody who worked there? Or maybe it was a spirit? I just, I don't know. But the fear she has in her face and body language, trying to appear smaller, almost wanting to vanish into safety, it suggests that something else is going on more than we're seeing. At one point, someone makes an eerie observation. 53 whole seconds suddenly vanish from the video. And the door that was fully open this whole time suddenly is half closed. And it shows it being at half closed. It doesn't show it like all of a sudden, like start closing. No, one second it's open and the half a second later it's half closed. How does that happen? Did someone taint, manipulate, tamper? mishandle or something else? Did, did something happen to this video that we, the public, aren't seeing? A lot can happen in that short amount of time. And if you're in trouble, 53 seconds may feel like a lifetime. Within weeks of releasing this footage, millions had watched and thousands have replied. It motivated some to even become web sleuths. It became a fascination for many worldwide. More like, more like an obsession. To date, well over 25 million people have witnessed Elisa's last moments. Okay. Now, it must be mentioned that Elisa Lam was seen by an employee of the hotel. And this employee says that, hey, you know, she was in an employee's only area. Since it's restricted, she's asked to immediately leave the area. She was last seen going towards those elevators. Well... The LAPD, they stop the search temporarily when they themselves are under attack. And I remember I was living in Northern California at the time, but had plenty of friends and family in SoCal, so I was up there often. Former LAPD officer Christopher Dorner was not only making threats on killing his former brothers and sisters in blue, he walked the walk too keeping true to his promise. He went on a killing spree, leaving a bloody mess behind, which in turn, huge, huge manhunt spread from California to Nevada and all throughout Mexico. 
Thousands of officers were assigned to patrol the highways, taking away from the search of Elisa Lamb. This cop-turned-cop killer killed his attorney's daughter, Monica, and her fiancé, Keith, who happened to be a public safety officer. In addition to the list of victims, he murdered a Riverside police officer, Michael Crane. He served two tours in Kuwait with the Marines as a rifleman. He survived that to come home only to be taken down by one of his own. Then there's San Bernardino County Sheriff Deputy Jeremiah McKay. He was often seen playing his bagpipe. He was a proud Irish man. In San Bernardino, he holds a terrified couple hostage, gags and ties them up. They thankfully survived this horrifying event. A carjacking victim is also spared death, yet not the scary experience. There's a shootout at Big Bear between cop, killer, Dorner, and California Fish and Wildlife game. He turns the gun on himself and commits suicide. Meanwhile, back at Cecil. The woman, she walks into the bathroom and, sifted through her toiletry bag, finds her toothbrush. She goes to the sink, turns the water on. It sputters out. Hmm. Why's the water not clear? Yesterday she noticed something was off too, but she had several things going on. She was in a hurry, so she quickly forgot about it. But this morning is a harsh reminder. Babe, can you come in here, please? Her boyfriend, several years, comes in. What's up? She points at the water. Look, that's not right. He shakes his head. Remember before bed last night, I went to get a cup of water to take my Tylenol? Something was off, man. It just tasted gross. Soon management and the front desk are getting several complaints of the water. The pressure is off. People who have drank the water, bathed in it, brushed their teeth, washed their hands, and what have you. Something's totally wrong with this water. It tastes raunchy. It has weird discoloration to it. One specific couple get moved to another floor. Same thing. Water is not so much water at this point, but some foreign nasty liquid. The hotel has maintenance available 24-7, so they have their main dude investigate the manor. He goes to several rooms and sees for himself what's going on. Concerned, he goes up to the Cecil's roof where there are four large water tanks holding thousands of gallons of water. He looks into one of them, sees Elisa's naked body floating face up. She was white like a ghost. 19 days after she went missing, Elisa has finally been found. Not the outcome anybody wanted to see. Her clothing is found at the bottom of the tank. The Cecil soon becomes the talk of the city. Hundreds of police officers are there. Press is knocking down the door. The whole thing is just absolutely bizarre. Something you'd think you would see in a movie. Some thought suicide, and with blogs she wrote online like, I don't want to live like this, and I want to kill myself. It scares me so much that I'm thinking about it. And sometimes I look into the world and I see nothing worth liking. Sometimes I look into myself and see nothing worth liking. Seeing things like this written down by the deceased, I can see why some may think suicide. But I, I personally don't think that's the case. Many believe she was murdered and her body was dumped in the least likely place anybody would ever look. Others blame her mental illness. And I think it's one of those things that we may never truly know. People can speculate or guess or, you know, a case could be closed. But really, you just... You may never know the actual 100% truth. And my heart, it breaks for her and her family. And I'm glad that she finally was found. And even though it may not be the outcome or the answers they yearned for, at least they know. At least she was actually found. There's many people who go months, years, sometimes never finding their loved ones that are missing. Once Cecil is being treated like a crime scene due to the gruesome discovery of the body, all the guests and residents are rerouted to other Los Angeles hotels. 
Hit the bricks, sweetheart. So watching the miniseries on Netflix, it shocked me that shortly after Elisa Lamb was found in the water tank, the hotel suffers a tuberculosis outbreak. A test was administered to all staff, guests, and residents to see who had it. And the name of the test, and I shit you not, is called Lamb Elisa. The victim's name backwards. I mean, what? Mind blown. I mean, I knew about the whole thing about her being found. You know, there were a lot of things that I knew about when I already watched the series, but that I did not know. I didn't know about the tuberculosis and I didn't know about the name for the tuberculosis test. I mean, Lamb Elisa. Her name's Elisa Lamb. A couple years after Elisa's nationwide death, an unidentified man's body is found right outside the hotel. It is believed that he jumped out from one of the hundreds of windows at Cecil. Now, you know, the deaths that I mentioned, it's just a mere handful. They're just ones that I was actually able to find online. But there are countless deaths throughout the decades connected and linked to Cecil Hotel. And again, one of the former general managers says that during her 10 years here, she saw at least 80 deaths, Elisa being one of them. She said death was consistent here. A former resident says, If you don't watch yourself, you may fly out of there with no wings. Another spooky incident that took place here was back in 1976 when an unstable man named Jeffrey Thomas Pally went on Cecil's rooftop, armed with his rifle, and he starts shooting. Miraculously, no one was hurt or actually even hit. At the time of the shooting, Jeffrey had been under mental treatment at a nearby hospital. The man, he's tall and gangly. He's awkward and somewhat of a loner. He walks to the fridge. He opens the door, pokes his head inside. His eyes dart wildly back and forth, looking at his edible options. He grabs something, shoves it in his mouth, starts chewing vigorously as he closes the door. He walks into the living room. A woman lays there, bloodied. She moans. He laughs, sits on the couch, and watches the elderly woman with amusement. The night stalker roamed the streets of Los Angeles. No one was safe. Richard Ramirez happened to be one of the residents at Cecil. On the 14th floor, for about 14 bucks a night, and I think he was there 14 nights in a row, and then he went somewhere else and came back. What was it with him in 14? I don't know. And, if I'm correct, if I remember correctly, I think he had 14 victims, at least. Many times, the murderous young man would walk behind the Cecil, strip down to his skivvies, or sometimes even be naked, dump his clothing, walk through the Cecil, usually covered in blood. But you know what? Cecil was that kind of place that no one thought to call the police, stop him, call for help. You get the drift, right? He blended in beautifully. Just another resident here at the old Cecil Hotel. There were many types of Richard Ramirez's out there. As a child, he looked up to his beloved older cousin. He would show the young Ramirez photos of him while in Vietnam, not fighting in the war, which he did do, but these pictures involved him raping the local women there, and sometimes it showed him actually decapitating these women that he just raped. When Richard was 13 years old, he witnessed that very same cousin murder his wife, still in prison to this day. Grew up in El Paso, he's often escaped his violent father, who made home a living hell. He'd usually sleep in a local cemetery, more than likely the Concordia, and yet another serial killer called Cecil home for a very short while. Remember how ignorant O.J. Simpson was when he penned the book If I Did It regarding the double murder that he will forever be connected to? Well, this guy is right up there too. He wrote a book called Purgatory or the Trip to Prison, Report of a Guilty Man. Like, really, dude? Not cool. The Austrian serial killer Jack Unterweger had already done 15 years in prison. 
He got his rocks off strangling women, particularly with their bras. He was quite the international serial killer, murdering his way through Austria, Czechoslovakia, Prague, and the United States. More specific, Los Angeles. And I believe Germany as well. After release from prison, girls, well, they turned up dead again. Just like before, strangled with their bras, totally his way. He was under suspicion and he knew it. No way in hell was he going to go back to prison again. So he makes a run for it. Takes a persona of being a journalist. His story is the study Skid Row and the prostitutes. Well, guess what? Pros ended up dead around him like flies. And yeah, with the being strangled with their bra, he ends up getting caught, arrested, where he stays for about two years. Then in 1994, he is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And the very night he was given that verdict, he hangs himself in his cell. And guess what? Any doubt that he was innocent went straight down the damn drain. When they found his hanging body, the knot that he did was the same one he did while strangling the other women. Is it a huge shocker that a place like the Cecil Hotel is believed to be cursed or haunted? Many times people there felt like they were being watched, not alone. I mean, it's a really eerie feeling for sure. Been there. Unseen eyes glued to the living. People have seen apparitions, seen shadowy figures, heard unexplained sounds, experienced cold spots, even at times being touched. One time someone, a child, actually caught an apparition on film. What looks like the apparition is about to jump out the window. Heartbreaking indeed. It was back in 2014 and the little boy was just taking pictures and the picture shows what looks to be like a transparent figure standing on the ledge outside a window on the fourth floor of the building. It was widely reported on with newspapers and, you know, news outlets and what have you. And the child told the reporters, When I looked at that window, it just looked kind of creepy to me. And then I showed my friend and he kind of freaked out too. It just creeps me out still. Poor kid claims that the photo has caused him many restless nights, many sleepless nights. And that's just so unfortunate. But yeah, it's like you're not like somebody like me or a lot of you where we're looking for that kind of thing. You know, you're, you're just a little kid on vacation, probably just taking pictures all happy. And you see something that's like, wow. Then I also found this very interesting encounter someone wrote online and it says this in a nutshell the cecil hotel has never had a sterling reputation even when it was known as the hotel cecil during my dad's tenure there in the mid 1960s in 1962 a woman committed suicide by jumping from a room at the cecil also killing a pedestrian that she landed on below Goldie Osgood, known as the Pigeon Lady at Pershing Square, was choked to death in a room there in 1964. That case was never solved. Which leads right into my dad's haunted hotel experience. Every time he told the story, I could feel the fear come off of him in waves, even after so much time had passed. He claims he went to sleep that night in his room at the Cecil, only to awaken to the feeling that he was being smothered and choked. He was bathed in a cold sweat and couldn't move or call for help. He felt a heavy presence weighing down on his chest and what felt like hands around his throat, but he could not see anyone. He literally thought he was going to die in that room. Finally, he was able to move. He bolted out of the room and ran downstairs to the front desk. After he gasped for breath, he told the hotel clerk what had just happened. The clerk said nonchalantly that someone had been murdered in that room. Dad was able to get his room changed as he made it clear he would never sleep another moment in that room. Did Dad have a supernatural experience in that room? Was it the room the pigeon lady was murdered in just the year before? I'll never know, but it does make for one hell of a story. 
And I think in another online site, I saw who I believe to be the same woman talking about her father's encounter again. But she mentions this, which I thought was really interesting. She says, Decades later, my father would be visibly shaken when retelling the story of what happened in that room at the Cecil Hotel. He would break out into a sweat, and his hands would shake. My mother would caution him to stop telling that story if it upset him so much, but Dad felt compelled to go on even while clutching his heart. My dad, he survived the Nazis bombing his hometown of Belfast, Northern Ireland, as a child. He recounted having to run to the bomb shelter in the middle of the night uh, with less fear than he told the story about that night at the Cecil Hotel. So, very interesting stuff for sure, and I'm sure he's not the only one to have encounters there. Why was it that so many people came here with the sole purpose to die? And in many cases, the families had no clue their loved ones were about to kill themselves. Did the Cecil have some sort of special twisted hold on these people? Cecil, where many checked in, but never checked out. Many intentionally. Suicide was mentioned a lot throughout this episode. If you or someone you know is depressed, going through hard times, or contemplating suicide, please tell someone. Call the hotline 1 800 273 8255. Again, that phone number is 1 800 273 8255. And I just need to mention that I've had a few people kind of say, like, why do you always throw that number out there, you know? And if I if I do stories on like the Japanese suicide forest or something like this or suicide bridges, uh, sometimes I forget, but I always like to throw that out there because if it could help one person, I actually had somebody say that her daughter was very depressed and she was listening to my radio show back in the day. And, um, she said it just meant a lot to her that I put that number there. Like you'd easily find it online or whatever, but just like the fact that, Hey, she knows that, you know, there's some of us struggling or what have you. Yeah, so there's that number for you. And I want to give the most spookily sincere shout-outs to my amazing voiceover friends and family. You each did a phenomenal kick-ass job. I asked you guys to pull through, and you certainly did. And I really absolutely appreciate it. I really do want to start doing voiceovers for people on this you know, podcast. So if you're interested, please let me know. And I will put you on my list for future episodes because I had so much fun. And it was cool because I actually had a lot of people come back to me saying, Tessa, I had a blast. I didn't think it would be so fun just recording something, but just to play make believe pretending, you know, to be a reporter about the lunging death of a woman or God, this place is disgusting of an angry reviewer. They had fun. It's just something fun to do. It takes a few seconds. You record it. You send it to me. Then you're on an episode that people will listen to forever. So there you go. Some of the people are on here more than once, but I'm going to be thanking them from the order they were in. Dan LaFave. Angie Velasquez. J.C. Salazar. Stephanie Chavez. Kevin Paul. Casey Morrow, Adrian Romero, Thomas Abel, Annie Weibel, Ed Dempsey, Rick McCollum, Steve Kawamura, Emma Leichtenfeld, Jeff Adkins, Brian Meisinger, My Sweet Daddy-O, Rebecca Peabody, Justin, Fitz, Brendan Shea, and so just a lot of awesome people showing me their awesome voiceovers. So again, you guys, big shout out to every single one of you. It really truly means a lot to me, and I had fun, you had fun, and I'm sure the people who listen will have fun too. So thanks. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? 
No need to cry. You can binge listen right now. Just head on over to any of those podcast platforms such as Overcast, Podcast Republic, Spotify, Deezer, Podbean, Pocket Cast, Apple Podcasts, wherever you may roam to hear your other awesome podcasts. You'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Kamasari, Brazil, Ephrata, Pennsylvania, Carboro, North Carolina, Bristol, Connecticut, and San Angelo, Texas. Each of you are just phenomenal and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Please be sure to throw that subscribe button some love. Throw a rating or review my way. If you have an idea for an episode, want to be on an episode, or want to do a voiceover for an episode, please let me know through paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can message me at Paranormal Prowlers on Facebook. Till then, see you next week.